I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! It's been a minute. Getting a Sunday morning recording from us. Absolutely. Yes. I have only had coffee and Vivance. <laughs> well, I'm working on my giant jug of coffee right now, so hopefully it will. I've taken my Ritalin. <laughs> I've taken my Zoloft, so. <laughs> hey, I took mine too. We're medicated. Yes, yes. we are. We are not yes. fed, but we are certainly medicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we we just spent a lovely weekend together. Yes, it was one of the best weekends I've had in a not, dog's age. Not long enough. I know. I got to do so much cool stuff. The queen bee, my little sweetheart child, went uh-huh. on a tour of our old stomping grounds with us and had lunch. We indoctrinated her into witchery. Yes, she had a blast. She loves her aunties. Hannah and Sheena. She yes. knows your names. I love it. Which, y'all, I don't, it, it is really serious that a three-year-old can remember because yeah. she doesn't know anybody's name. Well, yeah. when you messaged us that, me and Sheena were at Obie's eating lunch and I said, tell her to bring us our baby. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. She, like, we miss our baby. Yes. But yeah, um, yeah, because we went back to Ole Miss and hung out for a bit. Did some um, shopping. We did do some shopping. And we got matching tattoos in honor of the podcast. We did. Yay! They're very cute. Thank you to Peyton at Underground Art in Memphis for creating such a fun design. It was so great. I love it so, it's, so much. It's cute. And it incorporates a little bit of all of us. Yes. Yeah, it's so. very cool. Yeah. It's on our, there's a picture on our social medias if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So go look at that. And, and then go give that, um, go give Peyton love and go give Underground Art some love. Yes. Yep. They, they have some really cool artists there. Um, yeah. And true crime news update. Yes. Um, <laughs> I shared the story with the girls while they were here and they're like, yeah, you, you've got to share this on the podcast. So here we go. So we, we all know I'm a horse person, have a barn um, and we have a new barn cat. He's very, very sweet. The sweetest cat I've ever had, honestly. He's obsessed with my dad, which is hysterical. Um, <laughs> the only good Terry. Yes. This cat will like, my dad will be stick. It used to be that my if my dad was sitting at the barn, the cat would just immediately be in his lap, just staring up at him adoringly. <laughs> um, but it. now, if my dad is just standing, the cat will jump up into his arms. Oh, I love that. And his name is Butter Biscuit. <gasps> yep. my kids named him but he's a great barn cat but a couple of weeks ago i noticed when i was dumping out the water buckets because you know do that every day there was a dead mouse in one of them oh no it didn't look like it just looked like it drowned i'm like okay well that's weird mouse must have slipped and fell whatever then the mouse came out of the bar drunk must have (laughs) i have no idea so i didn't think anything of it and then um the horses were out for a few days, so I didn't change the water. And then I was cleaning stalls, dumping water. Well, there were two dead mice in one bucket. And I was like, that's not, that's not, no. They're not then, all drowning. Yes. <laughs> and then I went and got another bucket and it had a dead mouse in it. <laughs> so if you're keeping track, this is four dead mice in the span of a week that have no, in the no water marks bucket. in the water buckets. That cat 
is murdering these mice by dropping them in the water bucket and washing them drown. <laughs> and then he's when I working men- smarter, not harder. Well, That's and right. then when I mentioned it to my dad, he's like, "Well, you know what? I dumped out a water bucket in the barn, and there was a dead mouse in it." Like, yeah, his his kill count is now five. It's it's butter biscuit. We need to. Butter biscuit, oh, cool. the the water a, bucket I, murderer. A yeah. T-shirt. He could have his own T-shirt. I mean, oh, absolutely. We'll get I him mean, a mugshot. He has killed rabbits. He has killed <laughs> cardinals. He has killed uh, squirrels. And I've seen him eyeballing the ducks. And I'm like, okay, butter, <laughs> watch yourself, sir. Fuck around and find out, butter, because you don't touch my ducks. <clears throat> Oh my God, butter biscuit! He says, "I am here to murder and chew bubble gum, and I am all out of bubble gum." <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'll try to try to get a picture of him because he is adorable. He looks like just a little mini lioness. He's Aww. that tan color. So, he oh yeah, in. the really light cream. Yeah, yeah he's uh, yeah. So there's a, a serial killer living at my barn. So I'll let <laughs> you know if he it. starts. And and yeah. Anyway. My tuxedo cat, Eddie, he was a, he was more of a um, ritual murderer um, (laughs) because I would come home to a large pile of feathers in my spare bedroom and a tiny little bird heart in the middle. Oh my God. And I was like, sir, I don't know what sort of rituals you are performing, but I'm going to need you to do it outside. And that's strange that he's leaving you the heart because normally they would leave the stomach since they can't digest. Right. It it literally looks like an explosion of feathers and then itty bitty little heart in the middle and i'm like i don't know what kind of demons you're summoning but we're not doing this in this house cats and then more cat true crime jack bit me on the face last night and it bled (laughs) and i was like sir and you know what you know what i did to deserve it i moved my shoulder off of him not (laughs) onto him i moved my shoulder off of him which he did not enjoy because apparently we were having a moment and i ruined it (laughs) Well, sounds right. And and just to end the cat discussion because I just started thinking of this. And so my sister in law lives with us now, and she adopted a kitten. Um, I was her enabler. Uh, <laughs> it's a little orange kitten. He's so cute, and his name is Link. But Aww. I have named him, and I'm so proud of myself because I didn't realize his it, it had a pun in it until you know several days after I started calling him. <laughs> Those are the best kinds of puns. Lincoln Bartholomew. <laughs> His name is Lincoln Cute. Bartholomew. And he he's Cute. he's a vicious, you know, he's an, another orange cat. And, you know, the saying is that all orange cats share one brain cell. They and do. They, <laughs> and he, he has had, um, I, I've got, you know, scratch and bite marks on my face just for daring to pick him up and try to love him. So How I, dare feel, you? I feel your pain, Hannah. Right. <laughs> I was like, we were like just vegging because I have been playing Diablo four like all weekend. I am actually pausing it to be here with you people. I would like <laughs> some gratitude for that. And so we're laying down and I'm chilling. I'm listening to the last podcast and then clomp and the fa- I'm like, sir, <laughs> how rude. Cats. Yeah. Cats. They Love do not give a fuck. No, no. Speaking of happy little critters, yes. Um, shout out to our listener Lindsay and her family. Um, Lindsay lives in Memphis, and she comes to a lot of my tours at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. And knowing 
that my mom just passed and everything, she brought me this adorable little dragon critter that I have named Fernando. <gasps> oh, I love um, it. Partly because um, of the ABBA song, Fernando. Yes. I was going to ask you if that's what it was in reference yes, to. Yes, I, I like ABBA, which always disappointed my mother greatly she hated abba <laughs> i could see her not being a real disco uh aficionado no well, she I, like she likes disco she just didn't like abba like dancing okay. queen was like her idea of hell oh and I'm like, well, but mama, could, you know what so i understand catchy. it i understand Fernan- it I fernando was such a better name than willie though you know well true but yeah so, so yeah, so that's my little that's my little dragon friend. Thank you for that. And speaking of people on my tour, Lindsay is our future ghost. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um. Yeah. 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 Um. Speaking of tours, um, I hope we have a bunch of new listeners from my ghost tours that I've been given lately. Yeah. I am typically your Monday night ghost tour guide with Backbeat Tours. If you want to take a tour with me, um, but I had a wonderful group on the nineteenth. And to be perfectly a big fat downer, um, the oh, 19th was um, um, the one month anniversary of my mother's passing. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through that day. I don't know how I'm going to survive it, blah, blah, blah. Like I was dreading it. And I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be a good tour guide tonight, but I'm going to try. Like I really, you know, I was like, fake it till you make it. So like I, I tried really hard and I had some good people on the tour. Like they were so kind, so funny. They asked great questions. But when I was given my spiel at Ernestine and Hazel's, which I've covered on the show at some point, everybody in my tour group just gasps. And I'm like, what? What just happened? And they saw a shooting star. And so I kind of wonder if that was my mommy being like, It absolutely was. Even though I didn't see it, it was very cool that everyone else on my tour saw it Um, because I was too busy standing in the complete opposite direction and, and giving a feel. So anyway, I hope we have a lot of listeners from that because that was, that was just such a good night. I had such a good tour and it really lifted my spirit. So yeah, go check out our boo on her tours. She works hard yes. on these and she's very proud of them. Yes. It's, and we're very yeah. proud of our boo. It's, it's a lot of fun. I like and if you're allowed to tip her, tip her. Oh, they are allowed. And okay. I would appreciate it because that's how I'm making a lot of my money yes. right now is tips like that. That fuels my, you know, tip well, tip often for the next, you know, <laughs> couple all of days. poor. Like, <laughs> I will say when I, I started doing tours in March and I saved up money for my big skull tattoo that I got like two days before we got our cemetery row tattoo. And so like. The tips, yes, they they go to something good. Now, I did spend it on a tattoo the first month or so of tips, but now it's like money is tight for a lot of terrible reasons. It's about to hopefully get better. But either way, now it's like, oh, well, it's time to, you know, use this tip money for, you know, I don't know. Food, gas. Yeah, food, gas, cat the food. fun stuff in life. Yep. Yes. McDuff's cat food. He gets mad when I leave to give a tour and I'm like, sorry, buddy but gotta you keep need that shit powder my friend yes. exactly gotta keep that fancy piece going anyway i think that's all i had to say i have no idea but this week's episode is all about pride Woo! happy pride yes we love you if you are in the lgbtq the the 
what is it? The Alphabet Mafia. We love right. you. Right. Or La as- <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Um, and I think Hannah is going to kick us off with a monster of a story. Oh, yes. Okay. So it's Hannah's longest story ever. <laughs> yes. Hannah has two settings. Hannah has half ass or entire or what, what are the kids and saying? A half. Right. Uh, what are the kids saying on the Twitter? Putting your whole pussy in it. This is it. <laughs> so, and you know what? It's it's pretty fucking timely. Oh, go back and listen to our Titanic episode, yes. by the way, kids. Yes. <laughs> Speaking since, of timely. Since, we, since the Titanic is back in the news, we did do some really interesting stories from the Titanic mm-hmm. back in April. Um, and so you can go learn about the OG tragedy. Yes. I guess. And you know what? If you want to make fun of billionaires, this is a safe space. So don't feel bad. God, I I literally sent 20 memes to one person. To Derek, to our producer. I sent him 20 memes. I've been sending y'all every single hilarious TikTok I I find. I would just say, yes, fuck around and find out. Hannah's adage. You know, that's, I mean untested unproven materials are you fucking kidding me i may have grown up poor but i will not die in a submarine at the bottom of the ocean (laughs) amen you know the billionaire the only person i really kid the kid he did not want to fucking be there but it was father's day and his dad wanted to go and i just feel awful but the whole time i was like please god or gods or goddesses, whatever, whatever, whoever, what ever deity you want to play with Poseidon for Christ's sake, uh, please tell me it imploded and they, yeah. And that's what all the signs are pointing to is that it was quick. It it imploded. They may have known something was going to happen, but they didn't have time to register pain or even see like, no, yeah. Thank thank goodness for that. But yeah, that's true. And the ocean, you're going to find out. It's and true. like there will be no bodies because when it imploded, they essentially turned into flesh confetti. So yeah, they sure did. Tis what it is, kids. Someone someone described it as when Ursula kills her eels in the Little Mermaid. Uh-huh. Just- I saw that. Right. Uh, yeah. I, it's so. one of those things. I mean, having just lost someone, it sucks to lose someone you love. Oh, absolutely. But, and so I, I feel. Yeah, of course I feel bad for their families, but at the same time, I'm like, y'all had to have known this was a. T- right idea come on i mean all mm-hmm. of the like experts. you you might have money yeah. but you ain't got sense right and then all of our you know tax Ooh. money has to go to rescue these dumb fucks and i'm just like don't get me started on that yeah no well, and that. you know they knew like they yeah knew too, they knew pretty much right away what had happened right but and then still, we have this you know, dog and pony show you know yeah. it's yeah it's, it's it sucks and then you've got the conspiracy theorists like oh, oh god billionaires you know this was no, you, you, you. The only conspiracy theory I will accept is Cthulhu, and that is the only one. <laughs> well, you know, you, you have the hubris to believe that you can take this tin can down to the bottom of the ocean, right? Out of unproven materials, after all the experts who know more than you do tell you that is not a good idea. Please don't do this. It's, it's going to end badly. Um, and he's yeah. like, oh, progress. Caucasian shenanigans. Yeah, anyway, yes. So okay. Anyway, let's Hannah, get into it. Yes. Other <laughs> timely things. So, yes. if you're in the U.S., you are undoubtedly aware of the brouhaha over drag queen story time and, um, you know, LGBT 
anything being just breathed about in the vicinity of a child oh my god not like because there <laughs> definitely aren't gay kids that's for goddamn sure right no, um, they're made they're not born look it happens our freshman year of college when we listen to annie defranco and that is <laughs> how it happens um it's it's a whole ceremony it's like in the sims when you age up and there's boom <laughs> that's what happens freddie mercury comes out of the ether and kisses yeah. you on the head i was there that's <laughs> what happened to you right absolutely absolutely so because history does may not necessarily repeat it does rhyme um a lot of the people showing up to these shenanigans are nazis yep. and where have we heard this story before mm-hmm. oh with our good friend dr magnus hirschfield uh, Magnus Hirschfeld is the motherfucking boss. This is going to be long, and I'm even cutting like whole sections of his shit out be- for time because this man is fucking amazing. So, Magnus Hirschfeld was born May 14th, 1868, in Kohlberg in Pomerania, which, if you're wondering, is where the dog breed is from. That's what <laughs> I was about to I ask. I looked it up. I was like, tell me this is what the dog breed is named after. It is. Um, it is now Kolos, Kolobresk, I'm sorry, Poland, in Poland. So it's now part of Poland. Yes. Um, into an Ashkenazi Jewish family. And he was the son of a highly regarded physician and senior medical officer named Herman Hirschfeld. Herman. So <laughs> he studied at college. You know, he um, went to psychiatry school, such as it was in, you know, the 1800s. And then he traveled the United... Okay, so this story has everything, including (laughs) several Chicago tie-ins that I did not know. So here we are. And this is an even better Chicago tie-in because he visited the World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. Yes, he would remember what was happening. Who who else was there? Exactly. Wonder who. So I was like, of fucking course. Time has no meaning. It's a flat circle. Yep. Um, and so he was living off the proceeds of writing for different German journals. During his time in Chicago, Hirschfeld became involved with the homosexual subculture in that city. Struck by the essential similarities between the gay subcultures of Chicago and Berlin, uh, he first developed his theory about the universi- universality of homosexuality around the world. So this is where he's like, oh, no, everybody's gay. It's not just us. Everybody's gay everywhere. Um, And he started a naturopathic practice in Berlin, Charlottenburg, Berlin, for all intents and purposes. Um, Hirschfeld became interested in gay rights because many of his gay patients took their own lives. Mm -hmm. It's a problem we still have today. Yes, it is. In the German language, which we were discussing off mic, um, because the <laughs> German word for submarine is Unterseeboot. Um, <laughs> yes, it's perfect and I love it. Um, the word for suicide is Selmutsbord, which means self murder, um, which carried a more judgmental and condemnatory, you know, very yeah. much more than the english word um suicide which is basically like self kill this is yeah. self murder um it was a very taboo subject in 19th century germany as everywhere it's still a t- taboo subject here in 2023 america so yeah not much changes um 
In particular, Hirschfeld cited the story of one of his patients as a reason for his gay rights activism. A young army officer suffering from depression killed himself in 1896 and left behind a suicide note saying that despite his best efforts, he could not end his desires for other men and so ended his life out of his guilt and shame. In his suicide note, the officer wrote that he lacked the strength to tell his parents the truth. Those are in quotations and spoke of his shame of quote that which nearly strangled my heart the officer could not even bring himself to use the word homosexuality instead he conspicuously referred to that to as that in his note however the officer mentioned at the end of his note the thought that you hirschfield could contribute a future when the German fatherland will think of us more in just ter- in, in in more just terms, sweetens the hour of my death. Aww. So yeah, that would greatly affect me to be out yes. in the streets, activate you know, advocating as well. At the same time, Hirschfeld, which oh, Hirschfeld is also gay. So you know, this is. I mean, the, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also gay. Um, At the same time, he was affected by the trial of Oscar Wilde, who he often Mm -hmm. referred to in his writings. Hirschfeld was struck by the number of his gay patients who had, um, in the German language, Suizdal Narben, scars left by suicide attempts, so self-harming scars, and often found himself trying to give his patients a reason to live. Mm, Man. It was in 1896 after talking to the... Okay, here we go. Here's another part of history. Human zoos. <laughs> yeah. Those were a thing when we would go steal people from their countries and bring them here and gawk at them because, yep. and don't get on Germany shit because Britain did it too. Um, the World's Fair had some. So let's, let's everyone settle down. We were all across the Western world, hot garbage. Yep. But he actually spoke to these folks. Um, he began writing his 1914 book. I'm not going to try to say it in German, (laughs) the homosexuality of men and women, an attempt to comprehensively survey homosexuality around the world as part of an effort to prove that homosexuality occurred in every country and every culture. He's not wrong. Um, In 1897, Hirschfeld founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. The group aimed to undertake research to defend the rights of gays and to repeal paragraph 175, the section of the German penal code that criminalized homosexuality. They argued that the law encouraged blackmail, which it does. Um, The motto of the committee, justice through science, reflected Hirschfeld's belief that a better scientific understanding of homosexuality would eliminate social hostility towards gays and lesbians. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the source material uses the word homosexuality a lot. So I'm kind of going to go with the source material here, Um, but understand we mean LGBT folks. Um, Under Hirschfeld's leadership, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee gathered 6,000 signatures from prominent Germans to on a petition to overturn paragraph 175. (laughs) Two of the signatories included Albert Einstein and Hermann Hess. (laughs) Noted Nazi, Hermann Hess. Okay. All right, Hermann, I don't know what was going on with you, but okay. The bill was brought before the Reichstag Reichstag? In 1898, um, only supported by a minority of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, um, August Bebel, a friend of Hirschfeld from his university days, agreed to sponsor the attempt to repeal 175. Hirschfeld considered what would, in later era, be described as outing. 
So he saw people not saying shit about the bill that he knew damn good and well were gay. Right. And so he considered it. He he didn't, but he definitely considered it. And I think that is that's the discourse that we still have of like, you know, politicians who openly are antagonistic to the LGBT rights, but are, you know, on the DL. And I'm of the belief fucking out those fuckers. But that is for more learned people than me to discuss. So they did arrange to make some progress in the 1920s. They were going to try it again. And then the Nazis took over and they were like, well, that's not going to happen. As part of his efforts to counter popular prejudice, Hirschfeld spoke out about the taboo subject of suicide and was the first to present statistical evidence that gays and lesbians, well, homosexuals, were more likely to commit suicide or attempt suicide than heterosexuals. Hirschfeld prepared questionnaires that gay men could answer anonymously about homosexuality and suicide. Collating his results, Hirschfeld estimated that three out of 100 out of every 100 gays committed suicide every year. Oh, my God. And that a quarter of gays had attempted suicide at some point in their lives and that the other three quarters had had suicidal thoughts at some point. He used this evidence to argue that under current social conditions in Germany, life was literally unbearable for uh, members of the LGBT community. A figure frequently mentioned by Hirschfeld to illustrate the hell experienced by homosexuals was Oscar Wilde, who was a well-known author in Germany and whose trials in 1895 have been extensively covered by the German press. Hirschfeld noted that the name Wilde has, since his trial, sounded like, quote, an indecent word, which causes gays to blush with shame, women to avert their eyes, and normal men to be outraged. Oh, jeez. During his visit to Britain, Hirschfield was invited to a secret ceremony in the English countryside where a group of beautiful young male students from Cambridge gathered Cambridge, sorry, British, gathered together wearing Wilde's prison number, C33, as a way of symbolically linking his fate to theirs, and read aloud Wilde's poem, The Battle The Ballad of Reading Gaul? Gaul. Yeah, because it's the old word for jail. Hirschfield found this reading to be Here's another German word. Marker shouldn't <laughs> shaken to the core of one's being something that is emotionally devastating. I oh, fucking wow. love German. Um, <laughs> going on to write that the poem reading was the most earth shattering outcry that has ever been voiced by a downtrodden soul about its own torture and that of humanity. By the end of the reading, Hirschfeld felt quiet joy as he was convinced that despite the way that Wilde's life had been ruined, something good would eventually come out of it. I wanted to like put in the whole poem, but it's very long. Um, so please go read it. But a stanza from the poem is uh, used as Wilde's epitaph, and yeah, it is: yeah. "An alien tear- tears will fill for him, pity's long broken urn, for his mor- mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn." Mm. In nineteen o five, Hirschfeld joined the Bund für Mutterschutz. League for the Protection of Mothers. Again, I fucking love the German language. <laughs> the feminist organization founded by Helene Stoker. So he's not just down for the gays. He's also down for the ladies. Good. He campaigned for the decriminalization of abortion and against policies that banned female teachers and civil servants from marrying or having children. Uh, back in the day, even in the States, up until probably, I think, the 60s, if you were a teacher, you could get fired for being pregnant because... <gasps> 
Right. Students will know you had sex. Yeah. <laughs> There's been nothing more terrifying in the world than female sexuality. I swear to God. I'm telling you. Both Hirschfield and Stoker believe there is a close connection between the causes of gay rights and women's rights, which I believe is entirely true today. Yeah. Um, and Stoker was much involved in the campaign to repeal paragraph 175, while Hirschfield campaigned for the repeal of paragraph 2118, which had banned abortion. From 1909 to 1912, Stoker, Hirschfield, and a man named Hedwig Dohm, or woman, Hedwig might be a lady's name, they, <laughs> other uh, successfully campaigned against an extension of paragraph 175, which would have criminalized female homosexuality. So the OG one was against male homosexuality, and then this would have expanded it to females. Um Hirschfield's position that homosexuality was normal and natural made him a highly controversial figure at the time. It would make it today, involving him in vigorous debates with other academics who regarded homosexuality as unnatural and wrong. Second verse, same as the first. Right. Um, at the same time, because Hirschfield is down bad, became involved in a debate with a number of anthropologists about the supposed existence of the Hotentotenschurza. A hot and taut apron. Uh, here's going to come in another figure you undoubtedly know, the hot and taut Venus or Sarah Bartman. Um, namely, the belief that Sa that mm, Kikaho, known to Westerners as hot and taut women of Southern Africa, had abnormally large labia, which made them inclined towards lesbianism, which is an interesting correlation to <laughs> make. Jeez. Hirschfield argued that there was no evidence that the Kikaho women had abnormally large labia uh, whose supposed existence had fascinated so many Western anthropologists at that time. And other than being black, the bodies of Kikaho women were no different than from German women. Yeah. So they were basically using Sarah Bartman who had a condition and saying, well, all of the women are built like this. Oh my God. Um, so one Kikaho woman, Sarah Bartman, the hot and taut Venus, did have a relatively large buttocks and labia compared to Northern European and had been exhibited in a freak show in Europe in God, the early 19th so century Jesus. because oh. people are fucking garbage. Yeah, that is that is horrific. Hirschfeld wrote, the differences appear minimal compared to what is shared between Kikaho and German women. Turning the argument of the anthropologist on their head, Hirschfeld argued that if same-sex relationships were common around Kikaho women, and then if the bodies of Kikaho women were essentially the same as Western women, then Western women must have the same tendencies. I love it when you use your own logic against them. Exactly. Hirschfeld's theories about, the, about a spectrum of sexuality existing in all of the world's cultures implicitly undercut the binary theories about those differences between various races that was the basis of the claim of white supremacy mm -hmm. so if sexuality is a spectrum across all cultures and so too would be race yeah he had a lot to say about race we're gonna get to it and he's i love this guy is so awesome <laughs> i don't want to hear that he kicked puppies i don't care um i'll forgive him if he kicked i don't think he did okay good i'm just saying say, he, he doesn't well okay tight, but his lifelong partner was 30 years younger than him. So I will, well, but you know what? But that's not my what? business. Um, they, were adults. Legal. they were adults. They were adults. They were adults. Were they anyway? Um, he would have been 40 and the other dude would have been in his twenties. So I don't really consider I mean, it. It's not like he was going to his grade school and picking him up. 
Yeah, there's some of that May December romance stuff that is And between two men, I see less of a power for power differential than when it's two opposite genders, honestly. True, true. Yes. But that's me. Yeah. In 1914, Hirschfield was swept up at the national enthusiasm for the Bergenfrieden, uh, peace within a castle under siege, as a sense of national solidarity during World War I, uh, where, you know, Germans were rallying. Initially pro-war, Hirschfield started to turn against the war in 1915, moving toward a pacifist position. As a Jewish gay, Hirschfield was acutely aware that many Germans did not consider him to be a proper German or even a German at all. So he reasoned that taking an ultra-patriotic stance might break down some prejudice by showing that German Jews and gays could be good patriotic. You know, he was trying to be a pick-me a little bit. Right. And it's, you know, when you grow up in a place and you're trying to survive, I can see it. You do what you got to do. You do what you do. Um, By 1916, Hirschfeld was writing pacifist pamphlets calling for an immediate end to the war. He met his lifelong partner, Carl Geese, who we're going to talk about, um, after a lecture in Munich around 1918. So he was born in 38, or not 38, 68. Carl Geese was born in 98. So like I said, there was like a 30-year difference. At this time, Magnus was about, let's see, 68 to 18. He was about 40 or 50 and Carl was in his 20s. So again, yeah. there's a big difference, but whatever. Yeah. Um, he later became an employee at the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, and finally, Hirschfeld's life partner. He took over management of the archive of the Institute. Hirschfeld described their relationship as a physical mental connection. Aww. Ellen Bachard, a dentist from Copenhagen and World League for Sexual Reform committee member, describes Geese in her memoirs as the lady of the house. Um, according to Bachard, Geese enjoyed decorating the place, doing needlework, and looking after Hirschfield's wardrobe. <laughs> Geese was also interested in the theater and acting. He was part of a theater group and also had a role as young violinist Paul Corner in Richard Oswald's film, Different from the Others. Hmm. Um this is probably the most I'm going to touch on Geese. He's got a really interesting story in and of itself, but I've already got a seven page long script. So <laughs> Carl Geese for another time. Yes. In 1920, Hirschfeld was badly beaten by a group of Volkisch activists who attacked him on the street. So Volkisch is populist. So we're going to call them MAGA. Yeah. <laughs> the MAGA yeah. movement of the day. Yeah. The Proud Boys of, uh, of the uh, 20s in Germany. Um, he was initially declared dead when the police arrived. They beat him that oh badly. God. In 1921, Hirschfeld organized the first Congress for Sexual Reform, which led to the formation of the World League for Sexual Reform. And they had Congresses in Brussels, uh, London, all over the place. Um, Hirschfeld ha- was both quoted and caricaturized in the press as a vociferous expert on sexual matters. During his 1931 tour of the United States, the Hearst newspaper chain dubbed him the Einstein of sex. Um, he <laughs> wow. identified as a campaigner and a scientist investigating, cataloging many varieties of sexuality, not just homosexuality. He developed a system that categorized 64 possible types of sexual intermediary, ranging from masculine, heterosexual male to feminine, homosexual male including those he described under the word and this is not the term we use anymore but it was the term he coined transvestite right which he coined in 1910 those he described under the term transsexuals occur 
a term he coined in 1923. So he made a distinction. Um, he also made a distinction between transsexualism and intersexuality, which we yeah. know now is two different very different things at the time yeah. we did not at this time hirschfield and the institute for sexual science issued a number of what were called transvestite people to, or transvestite passes to trans people in order to prevent them from being harassed by the police basically saying they have a medical condition not you know right something aberrant or they're not being perverts you know yeah. to use the parlance of the times so under the more liberal atmosphere of the Weimar Republic, Hirschfeld purchased a villa not far from the Reichstag building in Berlin for his Institute for Sexual Institute of Sexual Research, which he opened July 6, 1919. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. The Institute housed Hirschfeld's immense archives and library on sexuality and provided educational services and medical consulta consultations. The Institute also housed the Museum of Sex. <laughs> An educational mm. resource for the public, which was visited by school classes. Imagine Hi. that field trip. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> we need sex education and schools. They absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, nowadays you'd get picketed by Nazis, but I think that's very smart to do, honestly. Yeah. Hirschfeld himself lived on the institution, lived in the institution on the second floor with Carl, together with his sister, Reka Tobias. Um. Again, I'm not going to be pronouncing these names correctly, and I'm very sorry. Geish and Hirschfeld were a well-known couple in the gay scene, um, where Hirschfeld was properly known, uh, popularly known as Tante Magnesia. Tante is the German word for, or German slang for aunt, um, which is for a gay man. Um, it didn't imply that he cross-dressed. Somebody said it yeah. meant he cross-dressed. But, I mean, think about how many gay men call themselves auntie so-and-so. So yeah. that's been going on for yeah centuries uh people from around europe and beyond came to the institute to gain a clearer understanding of their sexuality in addition a number of noted individuals lived for shorter or longer periods of times in the uh rooms available for rent or as free or as free accommodations at the institute um including dora richter one of the first transgender patients to receive sex reassignment surgery at the institute yeah. richter had been previously arrested for cross-dressing and discharged from the uh, military at the suggestion of a close friend she came to the institute for help hirschfield had coined the term transvestite in 1910 to describe what we today call transgender people um and he the institute became a haven for transgender people where he offered them shelter performed surgeries and gave them jobs uh Mostly as maids, but still gave them jobs when they yeah. were virtually unemployable anywhere right. else. Yeah. Um, Hirschfeld defined transvestites, again, the term at the time, broadly as people who wore clothing of a different gender than that assigned at birth. So uh, we're talking, you know, their gender presentation. This mm -hmm. category encompassed a wide range of gender nonconforming people. It also include those who occasionally or dressed or performed in drag as well as people whose gender identities uh differ from those assigned at birth so we've got everything from you know mtm and ftm or yeah. back and forth folks um to just drag queens yeah um hirschfield asserted that people who identified as transvestites were not necessarily attracted to members of the same sex so you can be a trans lesbian you can be a trans gay person trans bi or you can be trans hetero yeah and so he really like he decoupled gender identity 
from sexuality, which is still such an important thing to remember. Yeah, it really is. Trans men are not simply confused lesbians, people. Exactly. Jeez. So things get a little real in 1930 when Social Democratic Chancellor Hermann Müller was overthrown by the intrigues of General Kurt von Schleicher. Uh, presidential governments responsible only to President Paul von Hindenburg pushed German politics in a far more right-wing authoritarian direction. Under the rule of Chancellor Heinrich Brüning and his successor Franz von Poppen, the state became increasingly hostile towards gay rights campaigners such as Hirschfeld, who began to spend more time abroad. Quite apart from the increased homophobia, Hirschfeld also became involved in a bitter debate within the Scientific Humanitarian Committee as the repeal bill championed by Mueller also made homosexual prostitution illegal, which badly divided the committee. Hirschfeld had always argued that what is natural cannot be immoral. And since homosexual homosexuality was in his view, natural, it should be legal. Right. I love that phrasing of it. Yeah, what is do. natural cannot be immoral. So yes. think about that beyond just homosexuality. Think right. about it in just having sexual urges in general. Yes. Yeah. It's natural and therefore cannot be immoral. Right. Now, actions, eh, but again, just think about it in those terms. In 1930, Hirschfeld predicted that there would be no future for people like himself in Germany. He certainly had the pulse on that and he would have to move abroad. In November of 1930, he arrived in New York City, ostensibly on a speaking tour about sex, but in fact, it was possible to see, it was to see if he could settle in New York City. Um, while he was there, they refer to this as his straight turn, um, because he could kind of, Hirschfeld was great about reading a room, and he was like, you know what, Americans are not going to want to hear about the gay talk. They're going to want to hear about straight shit so yeah. the german language new york german word i can't pronounce <laughs> described hirschfield <laughs> as wanting to discuss love's natural turns the phrase love's natural turns was hirschfield's way of presenting his theory that there was a wide spectrum of human sexuality all of which were natural Hirschfeld realized that most Americans did not want to hear about his theory of homosexuality as natural. Aware of a strong xenophobic tendency in the United States where foreigners were seen as troublemakers and unwelcome, Hirschfeld tailored his message to the American tastes. Clearly intending to flatter the egos of the heterosexual male audience, Hirschfeld praised the drive and ambition of American men who were so successful at business, but stated that American men needed to divert some of their energy to their sex lives. Hirschfeld added he had seen that American men were now starting to develop their romantic sides, as European men had long since done, and he had come to the United States now to teach American men how to love their women properly. So, interesting, like, a straight turn, but also, like, y'all take care of your ladies. Yeah. Um, so, I can't hate him totally can, for that. Can he come back and, and keep teaching Yes, that, yes. That? Can we because... Can we revive some of this literature? Yes. Um, so by world tour, he meant it. He also went to Japan um, and all through Asia. Um, after staying in the Dutch East Indies, which is now modern Indonesia, Hirschfeld caused an uproar by a speech comparing Dutch imperialism to slavery. <laughs> Turns Yay. out they didn't like that. I bet they didn't. 
But Hirschfeld was that bitch, and I appreciate that. <laughs> um, Hirschfeld then arrived in India in September of 1931. His speeches were mainly concerned with attacking the 1927 book Mother India by a white supremacist American author with the last name Catherine, and I'm not making this up, Mayo. <laughs> oh, my God. Where she painted an unflattering picture of sexuality in India as brutal and perverted. Um, and he called the book England Friendly Propaganda. Woo! Hirschfeld wasn't playing around. No. He was very interested in the subject of Indian sexuality, or as he called it, the Indian art of love. <laughs> um, so Kama Sutra, bitches. Yeah, and you know what? Um, what how how Indian folks are are making love or not making love or, or whatever they want to do, that's no random white person's business. Right. Yes, it as, is. Huh? yes it is oh yeah we have to be involved in everybody's fucking are you fucking in a way i do not approve of no let me know about it you know the only thing i will have you as long as everybody's consenting and everybody's happy with what they're doing of the grand of age right right um the only thing in sex i will judge you with is if you leave your socks on Because I cannot tell you how many um, spicy documentaries I have viewed that I was completely taken out of it by lumpy crew socks just out of view. And it just, the lady boner just goes, I'd rather see your disgusting hobbit feet than crew socks. I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm just saying, I think the the people, the good people of India have been uh, procreating and, and having they sex have been for figured fun out for many, many years. It, one of the most no one populous else's. countries in the world. I They're think fine. they got it figured out. Like, it, that kind of crap just ticks me off. Like, why do you think it's any of your business to go and study it and then judge it? Like, that's not your business. Sit down. Anyway, right. Go ahead. I I'm with very you. mad at white yes. people. <laughs> I, girl, I'm right the there with you. I know. (laughs) In Egypt, and again, my stace lattice is it's all good, just don't leave your socks on. (laughs) In Egypt, Hirschfeld wrote, quote, to the Arabs, homoerotic love practice is something natural and that Muhammad could not change this attitude. So go Egypt. Yeah. In a rebuke to Western notions of superiority, Hirschfeld wrote, the average ethical and intellectual levels of of the Egyptians was equal to that of the European nations. Take that, motherfuckers. Yeah, but didn't we do the story on the activist from Egypt? Yes. Yes. It must have been at this particular time they were. Must have been. Well, and I think, too, it's it's like with a lot of like. What happened with Weimar with the Weimar Republic, right? Where it's yeah. this very open, very cosmopolitan society. Some of the best thinkers in the world right. were in the Weimar Republic. And then once you take this authoritarian turn, that's yep. when shit starts getting gnarly. Yep. And so that's what happened, you know, in modern day Egypt in the Arab yes. Spring, yeah. it takes this authoritarian turn where, you know, they start yeah. cracking down on these minorities. Yep. So back to Germany. Yes. On January 30th, 1933, President Paul von Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler as chancellor. Yep. Of course. Less than four months after Nazis took power, Hirschfeld's Institute was sacked. On the morning of May the 6th, a group of university students belonging to the National Socialist Student League, Nazi youth, 
stormed the institution shouting Brenna Hirschfield, burn Hirschfield, and began to beat up its staff and smash up the premises. In the afternoon, the SA came to the Institute, carrying out a more systematic attack, removing all the volumes from the library and storing them for a Burke burning event that was to be held four days later. Yeah, we we know about these people who like to burn books. Yep. And keep in mind that the first book burning was this institute for, you know, sexual studies. Yeah. In the evening. So targeting trans people first has a history. Yes, it does. In the evening, the Berlin police arrived at the institution and announced that it was closed forever. By the time of the book burning, Hirschfeld had long since left Germany, thankfully, for the speaking tour that brought him around the world and he would never return to Germany. Hirschfeld did stay near Germany, hoping that he would be able to return to Berlin if the country's political situation improved. With the Nazi regime's unequivocal rise to power coinciding with the completion of one of his books, he decided to go into exile in France. Not a great plan, but okay. Um, On his 65th birthday, May 14th, 1933, Hirschfeld arrived in Paris. That makes him a Taurus, yeah? Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hirschfeld arrived in Paris where he lived in a luxury apartment building facing Champ de Mars, which I'm assuming is a very pretty place. A year and a half after arriving in France in November of 1934, Hirschfeld moved south to Nice, 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 yeah. Nice, a seaside resort on the Mediterranean coast. He lived in a luxurious apartment building with a view of the sea across an enormous garden. Throughout his stay in France, he continued researching, writing, campaigning, and working to establish a French French successor to his lost institute in Berlin. Hirschfeld's sister, Reisha Tobias, did not leave Germany and died in the Therenset ghetto on September 28, 1942. Oh, man. The cause of her death was listed as heart weakness, but it was, I mean... Probably yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. While in France, Hirschfeld finished a book that had been writing during his world tour called Rasmussus, Racism. It was published posthumously in English in 1938. Hirschfeld wrote that the purpose of the book was to, quote, explore the racial theory which underlines the doctrine of racial war, saying that he himself was, quote, numbered among the many thousands who have fallen victim to the practical realization of his theory. So he's saying, look, I have, like racist ideals based on these theories mm-hmm. he's calling himself out which i enjoy yeah. yeah unlike many who saw the volkschick again maga ideology of the nazi regime as an aberration and a retrogression from modernity hirschfeld insisted that it had deep roots going back to the german enlightenment of the 18th century and it was part of mater- modernity rather than an aberration from it yeah he added that in the 19th century an ideology that divided all of humanity into biological differences white black yellow brown and red served as a way of turning prejudices into a universal truth and trying to validate them with science in turn, Hirschfeld held the view that this pseudo scientific way of dividing humanity was the basis of Western thinking about modernity, with whites being praised as the civilized race in yeah. contrast to other races, which were dismissed for their barbarism. Such was t- used to justify white supremacy. Yep. Again, he knew his shit. Yeah, he did. In this way, he argued that the Volkswagen racism of the Nazis was only an extreme variant of the prejudices that were held throughout the Western world, and the differences between Nazi ideology and the racism practiced in other nations were differences in degree rather than differences in kind. I fucking 
Love it. The neo-Nazis and the Proud Boys that we see today are not an aberration. They are simply the same bullshit, just turned up a little bit louder. Hirschfield argued against this way of seeing the world, writing, if it were practical, we should certainly do well to eradicate the word of the the use of the word race as far as subdivisions of the human species are concerned. Or if we do use it this way, to put it in quotation marks to show it is questionable. Love him. He can have his young boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) On his 67th birthday, May 14th, 1935, Hirschfeld died of a heart attack in his apartment in Nice. He died on his birthday? I know. All the big shit happened on his birthday. It was was crazy. That's some Taurus energy right there. Something. Jeez. The upright headstone in gray granite is in, or he is, his ashes were interred in a simple tomb in the Cacold. I don't speak French. I don't, I speak as much French as I do German. Okay. (laughs) In Nice, the upright headstone in gray granite is inset with a bronze bas relief portrait of Hirschfeld in profile by German sculptor and decorative artist Arnold Zadikow, who, like Hirschfeld, was a native of the town of Kohlberg. He was also a Pomeranian. The slab covering the stone is engraved with Hirschfeld's Latin motto, Per Scientinium ad Justinium, through justice to science. This cemetery is likewise the location of the grave of surgeon and sexual rejuvenation proponent Sergei Voronov, Voronov, sorry, whose work Hirschfeld had discussed in his own publications. On May 14th, 2010, in order to, to mark the 75th anniversary of his death, a French national organization, Memorial de la Deportation Homosexuelle, in partnership with the new LGBT Community Center of Nice, formed a formal delegation to the cemetery. Speakers recalled Hirschfeld's life and laid a large bouquet of pink flowers on his tomb. Aww. The ribbon on the bouquet was inscribed A Pioneer de nos Causes to the pioneer of our causes. Aww. Hirschfeld's quote-unquote radical ideas changed the way Germans thought about sexuality. American Henry Gerber, attached to the Allied Army of Occupation following World War I, became impressed by Hirschfeld and absorbed many of the doctor's ideas. Upon his return to the United States, Gerber was inspired to form the short-lived Chicago-based Society for Human Rights in 1924, the first known gay rights organization in the nation. Yep. In turn, a partner of one of those former members of the society communicated the existence of the society to Los Angeles Los Angeles (laughs) resident, fucking Christ, Harry Hay in 1929. Mm -hmm. Hay would go on to establish the Mattachine Society in 1950, the first gay rights organization to operate for many years in the United States. Mm -hmm. Fucking Hirschfield, y'all. Yeah. Magnus. Now can you see now why I need seven pages? <laughs> yes, and this wasn't even that. everything. That that was a great story, Hannah. I, I, I've I heard the name, but I didn't know much right. about him. And so. like people, like everyone has seen the pictures of that first Nazi book burning. Oh, yeah. And out of context, it's a terrible fucking thing. But then when you realize in the historical context yeah. that, you know, they were going after perverts and, and so, and like how many of that rhymes with what we hear today. Oh, and yeah. it's like, you know, God, we learn nothing. Nope. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, his thoughts on race and his thoughts on the, the racist ideology he was seeing, you know, he was like cutting through the bullshit of like, you know, even now we hear, oh, well, those are aberrations. The Proud Boys are right. aberrations. Marley, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her bullshit. Those are aberrations. <laughs> oh my right. God, yes. It's like, no, they're not. 
it's yeah. the culture just turned up a bit and yep. until and i'm gonna say it white folks sit with themselves and realize that you and the nazis aren't as far apart as you think you are exactly you have some of that same programming that same you know western ideology of race built into you and until you start looking into yourself and like deconstructing that you guys are on the same wavelength they're just loud you know so it's yeah white people absolutely need to do the work absolutely deconstruct deconstruct you know listen to these minority groups straight people same thing listen to gay people listen to trans people when they tell you this is our experience this is what is happening and when they tell you hey we're being genocided fucking believe them and when they are saying it starts with us and it will eventually get to you please believe them because history proves that exactly and we're going through that shit right now because they right. started with because with the Nazis for everything for everything that the Nazis were, which is pure evil. They were fucking smart. They knew exactly how to get into the culture and how to get, even if they weren't out there waving swastika flags, they were willing to ignore what you were doing so long as you didn't muddle with their status quo. Yeah, and so well, if you say, well. Look, these aren't really people. These are perverts that want to like right. want to fuck your kids, which is what yeah. they're saying now with that whole minor attracted person bullshit. Yep. I'm like, nobody believes that. Nobody no and then the does. people who are like, oh, drag shows are men in thongs in front of women. I'm like, or in front no. of children. I'm like, do you know how many foundation layers a drag queen has to have? Please. I know. Um, they call it tucking for a reason, motherfuckers. I know. And then, you know, with kids. I've never seen anyone's genitals in a public bathroom, and I have been no. in some shady fucking public bathrooms in my I day. Know. I mean, we were in public bathrooms in on fucking Bourbon Street, and I saw <laughs> yeah. nary. I didn't even see I a know. nipple. Uh, so, you see, you see more body parts walking down Bourbon Street than you exactly, do in a restroom. Exactly, and if your kid, if your small child is on Bourbon Street, you have problems. And true, I, true facts. Somebody true check facts. your hard drive. Let me tell you, my mother. When we went to New Orleans when I was a child, I think we didn't know. Right. And we walked down through there and mama said there were grown men hollering at me. And I was like, oh, yeah. If you ask most women, when was the first time that they were made aware that men thought of them sexually? It was when they were young. It's always very, very young. And so men fix your shit. Straight people fix your shit. White people people. fix your shit. Because trust me, nothing is ever going to improve unless we all address our inherent prejudices and and racist yeah, feelings. Yeah, and, and all acknowledge that, we, that we you have feel. them. And, and, and just, it's not it's not to me like you are actively trying to be a terrible person. It's, right. This is ingrained in you because it's the society. This you is grew the up thing in. you. But grew you know up what? In. You can unlearn all of this and you can do better and when you do better and we all do better we are all better happier people right society and it's like anyway y'all know what i'm saying oh absolutely it's like stop centering (laughs) your own feelings in the conversation yeah and if uh -uh, somebody about you boo right if somebody says something that you said or did even if you didn't intention even if that wasn't your intention and you're like and they say hey that's low-key kind of racist don't act like they just accused you of being a grand wizard in the clan no, no. We just both say, know that that's not what happened there. You just need to sit look at with yourself. your feelings and just say, yes. "Hey, look, look. I have these things that I thought from what I grew up in and the dominant culture of what I grew up in. Not saying it's right. 
and it doesn't let me off the hook. So I'm going to sit and I'm going to figure out how do I deconstruct this? And how, how do I, I do you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to start doing better. Like the British realizing, okay, we call it crisscross applesauce. I'm like, it's because we used to call it something a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. so give us this. Okay. We're improving. I know. <laughs> so yeah, mm-hmm. wherever Magnus Hirschfeld is, I hope he's having a wonderful time and I Me wish too. only good things for him. Samesies. All right, Lou Who. All right. Well, there are a few more connections, <laughs> uh, Hannah, than just the thought. obvious. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, hold on. Let me scroll up my computer. Okay. So today I'm sharing the story of a lovely lady named Margot Hoyman. And just, you know, putting it out there first, I am pronouncing the names that they were initially like in their native language because again germany (laughs) it's an interesting language right she and i'm gonna do my damnedest because i did a lot of phonetic spellings of these words but um in america you would pronounce her last name human (laughs) i love it the german pronunciation is hoyman so that is how i'm going to pronounce it so Margot Hoyman was the oldest of two daughters born to Jewish businessman Carl Hoyman and his wife Johanna in Germany, specifically Hellenthal, Germany, on February 17th, 1928. Oh. And I think you might see where this story is going to take us. Yeah, that's a weird time many, to be born yes. in Germany. Many, many, many years after her experiences during World War II, Margot would go on to be recognized as the first queer Jewish woman known to survive the German concentration camps. Her father owned a general store in the family, which included her younger sister, Laura, lived above it in an apartment. Um, When Margot was 10, she and her sister were kicked out of public school because they were Jewish. They were then enrolled in a Jewish school where they were taught by teachers that had been fired by the Nazis. Okay. Then in 1942, the Germans invaded their town and deported the majority of the Jewish residents to extermination camps. However, the Hoymans were sent to Terenzentat ghetto. In the that Czech is Republic. where his uh, sister was. Exactly. I was like, oh, very Margot's experience there was not quite as bad as uh, your guy's, uh, her sister. sister. Uh, While she was there, she met Dita Neumann, an Austrian girl who she quickly fell in love with. Because from the start, Margot knew she was attracted to women before all of this went down. Um, Then uh, Margot's father was caught stealing food and the family was ordered to Auschwitz. Dita's family was also a part of the group being sent to the camp and I guess she and Margot both volunteered to participate in forced labor in order to Mm. stay together Uh, her parents and little sister were sent to Auschwitz where it is believed that her father died but her mother and baby sister were um among the 1.1 million murdered at the camp during Mm. the Nazi regime. Uh, Margot and Dita were moved to the Nuengam camp where the girls who were just 16 years old 
shared a bunk and were forced to barter sex with German guards in order to obtain food. Bless. And a lot of their fellow inmates uh, viewed it as weird that they snuggled together on the and shared a bed. But Dita's aunt, who was also in the camp, was like, their children, leave them alone. They're they're coping, you know, kind of tried to brush it off. They stuck together throughout it all. They shared everything. Margot would later remember, quote, all these years after Auschwitz, I never ate anything without sharing it with her, mm-hmm. no matter how hungry I was. And she did the same. Aww. I think if it hadn't been for her, I wouldn't be alive. And I don't think she would be alive if it hadn't been for our relationship either. Oh, end quote. In another interview, she would say, quote, we gave each other hope and support and love and friendship. And I think that is what makes life worth living. Mm-hmm. Yay. So their labor included cleaning up rubble and building shelters for German civilians. Yeah. Because that's that's so much fun. Gross. Um, in early April of 1945, the camp was shut down and Margot and Dita were forced to walk the 62 miles to Bergen-Belsen without shoes. Oh, yeah, the death march. Yes. Yeah. On April 15th, so very soon after arriving, the camp was liberated by British forces. Oh. Margot was very ill with typhus and only weighed 77 pounds. Whoa. Oh, Christ. And she was about five foot five. That's what a toddler Whoa. weighs. Exactly. That is exactly. horrific. So Dia was sent to England and Margot was taken to Stockholm by the Swedish Red Cross, where she was taken in by a teacher uh, who nursed her back to health and provided her an education. And Margot remained close to this woman until the woman died in 1993. Wow. In, a, in an interview that I'm including the link, it's like a two and a half hour interview that was done with her in 94 uh, with the USC Shoah Foundation. Mm-hmm. Margot would say, quote, she shaped my life. She did more for me than anyone has ever done and didn't ask for anything in return. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she stayed very close with that woman, even though she was only in Sweden for a couple of years. Um, And Margot and Dita remained close for the rest of their lives. Dita went on to become a nurse and settled in Canada. So they found each other? Yes, but they weren't in a relationship after this. uh, Dita married a pathologist, uh, but they would meet up and visit each other every year. Oh, good. Okay. And and Margot was at Dita's bedside when Dita passed away from cancer in 2011. Oh. And I tried to find out more information about Dita and her life, but I didn't know what her married name was. Yeah. Right. So there was, it was really hard to track down. She married a man? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so after the two years in Sweden, Margot moved to New York because her maternal uncle was there trying to reunite the family members that survived. Oh, good. And she initially was like, you know, I'll stay here a year, you know. See how it goes. Yeah. Uh, But after spending time in the city, she chose to stay and live openly as a lesbian. Good for her. She worked several different jobs. She was a nanny, a waitress. She even worked in a button factory. Okay. And she began a relationship with Lou Burke, um, who would go on to become a well-known copy editor for the New Yorker. Hell yeah. And copy they lived, editors. Yeah. <laughs> and they lived in the West Village um, and they would frequent lesbian bars. And uh, Margot attended the City College of New York and Lou would read out of an uh, English dictionary to um, Margot to help her learn English. Oh, nice. And at one point she, uh, Margot was 
living in a house, like babysitting, working as a nanny for about three months while the mother had had surgery. And there was an, uh, another girl that had rented the apartment upstairs who worked for this like new company, new advertising agency called Doyle Dane Bernbach. And she was a secretary there. And after the three months was up, she got uh, Margo a job there where she kind of cool. was a, did everything. And she, uh, and that agency is still around. It's oh, now cool. known as DDB Worldwide. Okay. Um, and she worked there on and off. She, I think she took time off uh, later in life, uh, but she retired at 60. Mm. And her last, she had a variety of roles and her last role was traffic director. So she was, was doing the damn thing. Yeah. Love it. Margot and Lou ended their relationship in the early 1950s because Margot felt that she, quote, owed it to my parents to have children. Oh, quote. now okay. she wanted she wanted kids. But right. She also had I mean, I can understand if you lose feeling, your whole family in the Holocaust, you feel like you do have to keep the line going. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and in that interview, she talks about like the best day of her life was the day her daughter was born. So she, it, it wasn't just. Oh, my parents yeah. would want me to do this. She right. Wanted, she wanted children. And in 1953, she married an accountant named Charles Mendelssohn. And they had two children, a son and a daughter. Uh, however, in some of the sources, it said her husband had a gambling addiction and that led to abuse. She didn't in the in the video I watched, she didn't really reference that. Mm-hmm. But right. they they divorced in 1976. Her children were grown. So it was like, okay, I don't have to stay married to this ass right. anymore. And she yeah. said, she said, quote, life is too short. Yeah. <laughs> well, mean, and depending uh, on his background too, I mean, they find that not just the people who went through the Holocaust, but a lot of times their next descendants, mm-hmm. they have problems. I mean, it's that generational trauma that just yeah. kind of flows through. Yeah. So, um, I don't really know a lot about her later years. I know that she, she loved skiing. Like that was her, Mm -hmm. her jam. She loved it. And she did talk about in this video that she was going on a ski trip and was in a really horrific car accident. Um, And the friend she was with passed away in the accident. And so that was kind of traumatic. And she did deal with uh, PTSD and she did have some, she did talk about some suicidal ideation. I can imagine. you know, just dealing with what she and Dita went through during yeah. the Holocaust. And then, of course, later in life, losing this friend so quickly. I mean, just the, you know, the shit that I've gone through, which you know pales in comparison to surviving yeah. the fucking Holocaust, is still a lot of trauma and it's a lot to process. Yeah, it's car yeah. accidents like that where you lose someone there. They are tr- so traumatic. Well, absolutely. Yep. As as Hannah. Yeah, has definitely knows. Like, yeah. yeah. It's and to be in the vehicle, you know, obviously I talked about Shannon in a couple episodes ago. I wasn't there and it was still fucking traumatic as hell. Survivor's guilt is a motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely. Um, Okay. There was something else I was going to say here that I did not put in my script, but I cannot remember what it was. So on that. (laughs) Um, Oh, oh, here it is. Yeah. Um, So. She she talked about, or the New York Times, I think, mentioned in her, her obituary that she didn't really talk about the Holocaust with her kids. She did not raise them religious because right. I, I think she kind of lost her faith, which I I can't imagine yeah. being yeah. able to maintain it. Uh, but she told her daughter that 
her tattoo, her number on her arm was her phone number that had been put there so she wouldn't forget it. Oh, um, I remember reading about um, some graffiti they found in one of the barracks at one of the camps. And it said, if there is a God, he better beg for my forgiveness. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so she eventually moved out west uh, and she finally because she never said she was a lesbian. She never was out she just mm-hmm. kind of lived her life. Um, but she finally felt she was ready to share with her children that she was gay. Her daughter, Jill, said, quote, I always knew it was never a discussion. <laughs> I love that. And yeah. then her daughter-in-law said, yes, yes, you are, Marco. <laughs> so like, that is too cute. Yeah. Um, and so she, in interviews, she always spoke of her close bond with Dita. But it wasn't until she met Anna... Hashkova, a scholar of queer history and the Holocaust, who was also a queer woman herself, that she shared that it was a romantic relationship. Um, She shared her story with Hashkova in 2018, and it was included in the book Quartet, Sexuality, Queer Desire, and the Holocaust. Her story was also retold through a one-act play, The Amazing Life of Margot Hoyman, that Mm -hmm. premiered at the Brighton Fringe Festival virtually. You'll appreciate that one, Sheena. Yeah. In June of 2021. And so, sadly, uh, and I didn't, shit, I didn't put, I didn't put when she died. Fuck. She died in 2022. Oh, okay. Wow. She lived. That's a good long run. Let me, let me look it up real quick yeah she lived and you know what i have found and i don't know if y'all have seen this uh holocaust survivors fucking live a long ass time they do oh yeah yeah okay so she died at age 94 wow on may 11th 2022 damn sadly I could not find it. And, you know, she know you've referenced this before that usually um, it takes a while for. Yeah. If it's that recent, it might not. Because family and things like that. So, um, you know, so there is, I I wasn't able to find where she was buried and and that sucks, but one day I'm sure it, it will be publicized. There is a plaque um, with her information on it. I can't remember where it was, but it's like honoring those lost in the Holocaust and there's a little so uh bronze plate for her parents mm-hmm. and her little her baby sister. Yeah. Um and so I want to end with a quote from that interview that again the link to the YouTube channel is going to be in the show notes if you want to go watch or, or browse through it. Uh when the interview asked her, why do you think you survived? And Margaret responded, quote, my will to live. I never gave up ever at any time. Mm-hmm. So that is the story of Margot Hoyman, who, you know, wasn't closeted, but wasn't really a lot, didn't really live her truth, I think, until later in life. But yeah, she- and I think there's a lot of ways to be queer, lesbian, gay, you know, whatever you are, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to look any specific way right um you know you could there it's a spectrum and you know she wanted to have children she knew the way to do that was you gotta have sex with men right i mean that was you couldn't like you know and she might have had you know at least some feeling for her husband enough to do it at least twice you know (laughs) you know and so i mean and that's the thing is like 
you know, not everyone is the group from Queer Eye, you know, yeah. a lot of people just live their, you know, normal, boring lives and they just happen to have a husband, you know, or you know, a same sex spouse rather than an opposite sex spouse. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like the defining feature of their lives. It's just one part of, you know, who they are. There's nothing yeah. I hate more than, and I feel like this goes for a lot of things, sort of that performative nature of our society where you have to like perform right. your gayness to be right. gay. You have to like, like, I kind of get annoyed sometimes because I feel like there's a lot of pressure on women who are pregnant. It's like, let me show you my pregnancy. Let me show you my baby bump. Perform like, femininity in that way. Perform it in that way. And I'm like, there's some women who love to show that off and they're proud and great. But there are some women for for whatever reason, they're not comfortable doing that. And it that's a hundred percent their right to say, you know, I don't want to No, you can't touch my belly. Um, right. And, I mean, and, and that's with motherhood in general. And so right, exactly. Stuff. And it's like with, you know, motherhood in general and Lori, I'm sure you mm-hmm. can kind of relate to this. Some people being a mom is like the, their only identity, their mom, it's, this mom, yeah. that, and some people it's like, that's yeah, cool. if that's I'm you. a mom, but I also do X, Y, and Z and obviously love my children and obviously love being a parent, but it's not the only thing that I do. Yeah, yeah. it's just that kind of thing annoys me where you have to, it's like you have to perform a certain way or look a certain way or do a certain thing to be considered whatever. Right. Well, like, uh, you, on, you got to prove nothing to nobody. On what you just said, Hannah. So um, I went to a horse show Friday night. And it was an opportunity for me to take my barrel horses. It wasn't the Saturday night shows that the kids go to. And I had so many people ask me, where are the kids? I'm like, they have a dad. They have their daddy tonight. I don't ever get to go and ride my barrel horse. It was a Friday night. It was, you know, my dad said he would drive us up there because I can't pull the horse trailer without him driving me now. Right. (laughs) Um, And it was like, I had like four or five people be like, oh, where are the kids tonight? Hey, well, oh, Mama's exactly. Off, and I commend yeah. Adam for not acting like he's babysitting his own kids. Oh, no. yeah. It's like, you I know, mean, I asked, I made sure he was okay with me not being home because I didn't get home till 1130. And like, right. Hey, yeah. Is it okay if I do this? Just like I always tell him when we're recording. So he's prepared. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, no, it's like I'm I'm a mom, but I'm also a barrel racer i haven't been right able to do it in eight years because of the children and damn yeah. it i right. want to get back into it. right and yeah. they're be you know they're getting to an age where they're you know not self-sufficient but they're not on the tit you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know exactly it's, it's, so it's yeah it's, yeah it's it sucks that the world is a way where the majority of people think that you have to be you can only be one thing like well, I yeah. even like i was talking to mom about how like you came with us to do a bunch of stuff and she was like oh is her husband okay i was like well, <laughs> her husband actually likes his children so. yes well, and bonnie, <laughs> you know? i i knew that it was gonna be a lot me being gone all weekend so i'm like well bonnie will come with us because right yeah bonnie and loves she was me so great and she oh yeah she had a, and it's good for her to socialize with people just she doesn't see every day yeah, yeah. no it was great bonnie is fine i can tote her ass everywhere and she is not going to complain <laughs> um but oh god, there was something else that you made me think of, Hannah, and of course I've forgotten what it was. My brain's just not working today. But uh, but yeah, no. Oh oh yes. Speaking of personalities, like I can be punk rock and into bands yep. and music and have purple hair, but I'm also a horse girl. 
Yeah. Like, right. You can be more than one thing, people. Yes, you and can. Yes, you can. You can be a We contain multitudes. And, and not want have to have children. And want to have children and be a skier and not have that be your entire personality is, oh, I'm a lesbian, you know, or, right. oh, I'm a Holocaust survivor. Right. It was very much a part of her identity, but it wasn't something that she felt the need to center. Right. She and in her she talked about, you know, her son was interested in the Jewish faith and had joined a um, synagogue and right. And his kids yeah, were synagogue. Going, yeah. And like that was his choice. He was interested in that. And yeah. More yeah. power to him. Um, I mean, and that's the way my parents were like with me with faith is like, you know, mom baptized me Catholic because that's what she thought was the right thing to do and had me do communion and had me do my confirmation. She's like, but after that, it's up to you, you know, do what you got to do. Can I tell you something funny? You say, yes. uh, So a friend of mine, I was in her wedding like 12 years ago or whatever. And it was when Adam and I were dating and he got so terrified at her wedding because I don't think he had ever been to a Catholic wedding before. And just, he's like, fucking people are chanting and repeating and i don't know what the fuck is going on and you're up there so i don't have you to support me you just lip sync you just lip sync and as long as you look like and then like because there's one um where they had mouth heart and so you just my dad the first time he went to a catholic mass was like and I'm like, just, just do what they're doing. Just follow yeah. along. You're good. You're good. Yeah. No, it's, it's insane. Like I, ooh, it was so funny afterwards. He was so stressed out. <laughs> like there's choreography. Okay. Yeah. Like what the fuck did you bring me to? <laughs> so, well, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, Love Tina, it. That's such gonna, a cool story. Yeah. I, I thought it was. And you know, I uh, can't imagine being being gay and surviving the holocaust right she was just the fact that she was you know kid quote unquote yeah probably what kept them from being murdered because if they had been adults snuggling especially auschwitz yeah yeah they would have been um well no she wasn't she was oh her family she oh her family went to auschwitz okay because she was uh chose to do the forced labor so gotcha uh, gotcha gotcha wound up at bergen belsen but I don't think they would have been uh, let. Though it is funny to me how people are people regardless of the circumstances of like they're in a forced labor camp and they're like, those girls are snuggling. (laughs) Do do you think this is the biggest thing we need to concern ourselves with right now? assholes they're we're children. in a concentration, in a concentration camp let them snuggle it's not your for business right yeah so a lot of a lot of people would do really good if they just shut up and mind their own business absolutely mind, mind your p's and q's do your own damn thing you as we have mind. discussed just don't wear your crew socks <laughs> well as as casey musgrave says says mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy yes. absolutely that's right to put it in a very country way so i love it speaking um, of country <laughs> yeah kind of um my story is wildly different than those two so <laughs> you know um when we don't plan we don't plan and so absolutely i mean she's a lesbian so there we go that's my only connection um but if you're a fan of the either the tv show or the movie what we do in the shadows and I and you am. should be it's and coming. you should be i still haven't season. watched it oh my god ah, it is so, y'all it's the best okay. If you need something for me, my birthday in, you know, six months or whenever. Yes. I want the Matt Berry shirt where it says bat 
<laughs> I want making notes. All the making all the notes. all the what we do in the shadows merch. I love them Samesies. both. I kind of like the TV show better, but I love both. They're fantastic. I, I'm obsessed with both. Mm-hmm. I couldn't pick a favorite if you made me. This I is love the them both. only show that we watch the opening credits. And oh now you're yeah. Gonna ex- oh now my you're goodness. Gonna explain why. I was about to say, look, if you the love little Eastern one. European lady that lives in my head and monitors when I can consume new media. When she decides it's time, I will. You will love it, Hannah. It is the best thing ever. Yeah. Um. So yeah, what we do in the shadows. If you are not familiar, it is was first a um, vampire mockumentary out of New Zealand. Now it is an FX TV show based on some vampires out of Staten Island. Before um, you go on, I've just got to say Taika Watiti, who we all know and love as the director of Thor, mm-hmm. yes, the third one, the good one, the gayest the, one, yes, gay Thor, and then the one after that. Uh. He's also, uh, what's the little rock monster's name in Thor? Anyway, he's the little rock remember. monster guy in that one. Yeah. But he was a part of the group that uh, did the movie. Created. And created. Yeah, love it. So. And and those vampires from the movie make an appearance in the TV show. Oh, yes. There's the episode. Oh, God. I, don't eat. I, know, no, I, I don't. keep interrupting you. There's an episode that is just the best, the most meta fucking episode yeah. with a bunch of vampires so anyway i'm gonna shut anyway, up now. yeah it's great anyway so yes i'm talking about i'm not talking about that show whatsoever until the very end of this but you will know when we get to it anyway okay listen picture it january 30th 1939 vallejo california norma cecilia tenega was born this makes her an Aquarius. Her mother, it. Otilda, was from Panama. Her father, Tomas, was from the Philippines. And he was a bandmaster for like 30 years in the United States Navy aboard the USS Hornet. Uh, he eventually left to start his own band. She also had a brother named Rudy, and he went on to serve in the Air Force. So she came from this military family. Uh, Norma and her family moved to Long Beach, California. When she turned two, she was kind of always this California girl. She began classical piano lessons at the age of nine. And apparently she was very just super creative and artistic from a young age because in addition to playing music, she also painted. In high school, she directed her high school's art gallery and exhibit exhibited her work her paintings at long beach's library and their city art center um she would play bartok and beethoven at piano recitals she was writing poetry i mean just being just as absolutely creative as she could be which i think is rad um at 17 she entered scripps college on a scholarship and she went on to claremont graduate school and she earned her mfa in 1962 so she's very very smart very very creative um uh, it sounds of course like she's kind of living this incredible hippie creative lifestyle so of course she spends a summer backpacking around europe which sounds amazing then she moves to new york city specifically uh greenwich village to become an artist and this is where her music career starts to take take off and she also became a political activist um she was like opposing the vietnam war and all that good stuff Now, during her summer, she worked at a camp in the Catskill Mountains, hello, Dirty Dancing, um, as a camp counselor. And Herb Bernstein, a record producer who worked with 
everyone amazing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, like Tina Turner, The Four Seasons, Dusty Springfield, Leslie Gore, Bob Dylan, Tony Orlando, and Dawn, like all of these amazing people. He heard about Norma from one of her friends, and this friend was like super persistent, like you've got to listen to this woman. Uh, She is, you know, so creative and so talented. And so finally, he was like, okay, yeah, sure. So he listens to her. He's impressed by what he heard. And he introduced her to Bob Crew. Now, Bob Crew wrote songs for the Four Seasons, um, like Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Bye Bye Baby, Can't Take My Eyes oh, Off damn. You. He also co-wrote Lady Marmalade. So, oh, sweet. This guy's rad. Now, Herb called, uh, recalled hearing Norma and her music for the first time. He's, this is his quote. The truth of, of the matter is I really expected her to be there for 10 minutes and that would be it. She started playing me these songs and each one was weirder than the next. It was <laughs> almost impossible to figure out her rhythms. I felt like I was going to school. So Bob and Herb worked with Norma to produce her first record and singles. They were released on Bob's New Voice Records label in 1966. Her first single was Walkin' My Cat Named Dog. It was released (laughs) in 66, and it became a big hit. It reached uh, number 22 on the U.S. Hot 100 and the U.K. singles charts, and it hit number three in Canada. And this was a, like, true song she wrote because her apartment in New York would not allow dogs. So she got a cat and named it Dog and walked it. I love it. So <laughs> she really was walking her cat named Dog. It is an adorable song. Um, I highly recommend looking it up. It's just one of those fun, folksy kind of songs from the 60s that just it puts you in a good mood. It's really good. Uh, she performed on a lot of TV shows because her song was a hit. So she was on like American Bandstand and stuff like that. And then she was the only woman on a North American tour that featured a lot of artists from the days like the McCoys. Uh, and Gene Pitney and Chad and Jeremy. Now, fun fact about Chad and Jeremy. You know Dick from Supernatural? Mm-hmm. Played by James Patrick Stewart. He was also in General Hospital. His dad is dad is Chad Stewart from Chad and Jeremy. Jesus. And he writes music and plays songs and all that too. So he's also a musician. Just fun fact to know and tell. I met him at a general hospital convention at Graceland. Weird sentences that come out of my mouth sometimes. (laughs) And I I love a supernatural tie-in. I know, me too. Um, So Norma on this tour was originally backed by a band called The Outsiders, but her music was so weird and idiosyncratic that they couldn't really follow her music very well. Um, So she had to get some other uh, artists backing her. Her next three singles were not as successful as Walkin' My Cat Named Dog, but they named her debut album Walkin' My Cat Named Dog to kind of tie in with the hit. So it sold pretty well. Um, A ton of artists have covered Walkin' My Cat Named Dog, even artists in other languages. Like they have translated it like into Danish and French and all this. So Um, later in 1966, Norma went to England for a promotional tour. She was performing on a British TV show where she met the beautiful, the talented Dusty Springfield. Oh, yeah. Now, children, if you do not know who I'm talking about, please go Google Dusty Springfield. You probably know her hit song, Son of a Preacher Man. She is a dish. Uh, she, one of her most famous albums is Dusty in Memphis. 
and which she recorded in Memphis. It is one of my favorite records of all time. And like, I, I never really delved deep into it because I always thought, yeah, 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 it's great. Whatever. I went on a deep dive like last year and just immersed myself in it. It is one of the most incredible albums I've ever heard. Like I love her. So Dusty is this incredible sort of bluesy, but also kind of pop singer. And Norma is this like little cute little folky singer. And anyway, they hit it off. They fall madly in love. These ladies were lesbians as Blanche Devereaux would say. Um, So they start dating. Well, Norma goes back to the United States and because they are still wanting to flirt and talk, they are making a lot of transatlantic phone calls to each other, which were at the time very expensive. And they racked up huge phone bills, which I think Mm -hmm. is adorable. Mm -hmm. Um, Dusty visited Norma in New York and they soon became a couple and they moved to England together and they were together for five years. So a lot of people kind of know her as Dusty Springfield's you know, like longtime partner, but I'm and like, today was... I learned Dusty Springfield was gay. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't know yes, that she very much was. Um, but yeah, um, I, Norma is so much more than Dusty Springfield's partner. You know, like yeah, absolutely. Um, recalling her chemistry with Dusty Springfield in an interview with a um, newspaper in 2019, Norma closed her eyes and said, "She heard me." which I think is a beautiful way to put that because if you want anything out of a relationship, it's to be heard and understood, you know, like what a beautiful thing to say. So anyway, Norma and Dusty lived in uh, London's Kensington district. Norma continued to play music and paint. Dusty, meanwhile, recorded a lot of Norma's songs, including No Stranger Am I, The Color of Your Eyes, which she wrote for Dusty, and Midnight Sounds. Norma's mm-hmm. songs were usually B-sides to Dusty's singles. Ooh. Now, at this time, Dusty was, her career was really taking off. She racked up a lot of hits. And then in January of 69, she released her fifth album, Dusty in Memphis, that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It's considered her best album and one of the best albums of all time. It was recorded at American Sound Studio in Memphis. And I, again, I cannot recommend it more. Um, anyway. Norma was often uncredited for co-writing or writing these songs for or with Dusty. Or, um, and by 1970, their relationship was kind of starting to cool off. Norma scored a record deal with a British division of RCA and released an album called I Don't Think It Will Hurt If You Smile in nope. 1971. And that whole album is basically about her relationship with Dusty. And it wasn't very successful, but that's okay. You know, it happens. Um, the pair broke up. And in 72, Norma moved to Claremont, California, where she began teaching music and English as a second language. She picked up her paintbrush again. She started ex- um, exhibiting her work at the Claremont Museum of Art and she performed her music there too and her music at this point really started to evolve from more of a guitar based folk rock sound to more percussive and more experimental and instrumental um I there's only one other woman that I know Norma dated um artist Diane Dabblebess I Hmm. they met in college and then after Norma and Dusty broke up they dated um but you know i don't have a whole lot about her like and i'm sure she did do some lgbtq activism but i don't have a whole lot on her like being a you know right 
massive activist or whatever. I don't know a lot about her personal life. Um, I'm more, um, know more about her career. So this is a little light, I guess, on the the lesbian side of things but <laughs> she was still a lesbian but either way right um so in the 80s um again just norma was just endlessly creative uh she became a member of the ceramic ensemble it was a group that played handmade earthenware instruments made by scripps ceramics professor brian ransom okay. which i'm like that is really cool like someone makes some ceramics and you and this whole group like perform with them that's really rad that is me. neat I just think that's so cool and folksy and hippie-ish. I just love it. They performed at universities and folk festivals and art museums and all that. She did form a couple of bands in the 90s and 2000s. Um, she was in Hybrid Vigor, which released two albums. Latin Lizards, which released an album in 2003. And uh, Baboons, Baboons with a Z, which released several love it. albums. Uh, she died in Claremont on November, I'm sorry, November, December 29th, 2019. Uh, she passed from colon cancer. She was Aww. 80. She was cremated and she and her mother both had their ashes scattered at the lawn of their home in Claremont, which sounds very lovely. Like that's a really lovely yeah. way to go, like at your home. It sounds nice. Um, Norma's music has been covered by a zillion artists over the years. Um, they might be giants. Yola Tango and Dr. Hook have all covered Walking My Cat Named Dog. <laughs> now, she did release two solo records and several albums with other bands, but she was technically a one hit wonder. But 48 years after her debut record and hit song, she found success again, thanks to What We Do in the Shadows. Her song, You're Dead, became the theme song of the movie in 2014, and then it became the theme song of the TV show um, in 2019. Um, You're Dead is actually the first track on Walkin' My Cat Named Dog, <laughs> the <laughs> album. It was written about her struggling in New York's competitive art scene. So it sounds it's all it sounds like it's about, you know, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and out of this world, you know, like Yeah. But it, it's it sounds like it's about death, but really it's about the art scene and how if you don't do certain things, you're dead and you're nothing right. on all this. Anyway, but I just love it because I Which is what Chara Brock by the Smashing Pumpkins is about. Yeah. <laughs> I love just it. love it because I mean, I, like I'm rewatching the show now because the new season starts in July. You're welcome for this free publicity FX. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm like you, Lori. I never skip the theme. I love it. I love that song. Like mm -hmm. I've added it to every Halloween playlist ever, even though it's not about death, technically. There is a really cool short documentary on Norma um, on YouTube. It's called Norma Tanega Short Film. It's from 2011. And this, it said the filmmakers started making the movie. Some stuff got in the way and she passed before they had a chance to really flesh it out more. But it is really cool. It's very, very short, but it shows her playing music. Uh, she's playing Walking My Cat Named Dog on these percussive instruments. And she sounds amazing. Like for her, her to be an older lady in this, like she just, you would not think she was older. She is is so just full of energy, has a beautiful smile. It's wonderful. And then there's also a book about her life and her art. It was released in 2022. It's called Try to Tell a Fish About Water. And cool. it includes oral histories from her friends. And it's filled with her paintings and all this. It seems really cool. 
And then there was a compilation release last year um, of studio and demo recordings called I'm the Sky. And I wanted to end out here with a quote because this to me sums up this woman who when you see her, she just has the most beautiful, infectious smile. She seems to be just so endlessly creative, and it seems like she finds inspiration everywhere. So this is her quote, um, and she gave this quote in an interview 16 days before she passed away. She said, I always played for personal joy, and that could make things difficult. Music is for pleasure. I was never good at business. I never wanted to be a serious artist because I like to laugh too much. Aww. And that is the lovely Norma Tanega. She sounds yeah. fun. She does. The more I, I studied her and learned about her, the more I was smiling. I'm like, this lady just seems like a joy. A pure joy. And yeah, I mean, it's cool that she dated Dusty Springfield. I love Dusty yeah. Springfield too. But I know. I love there's that. There's a lot more to her than that. I really wish she was more well known to people. And I think the show and the movie definitely have helped that. But yeah. So go listen to Walking My Cat Named Dog. It'll make Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so fun. Yeah. So that is our episode for Pride. Again, um, we we love all of you. And we support you. And you're awesome. Next week's episode is going to be a grab bag. Yeah. Because I think Lou who's going to be traveling a bit. So we're going to kind of just have some fun, tell some fun stories, nothing too serious. Um, Who knows what we will come up with? Oh, yes. No. Lou who, where can people find us online? We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. Or you can send us a Gmail to Cemetery Row Podcast. Is it cemetery Ooh. cemetery row pod at gmail.com? <laughs> there we go. It's a group effort. It's a group effort. We're all in this. My together. brain just farted out. That's okay. It happens to the best. Look, of us. none of us have eaten. We're all hungry. Yeah. I know. I'm drinking coffee here. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks for tuning in. Please go leave us a review. Yes. Um, and tell, tell your, your friends, friends about us, all yes. that good stuff, because we would love to have more of you. So thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.